Good morning, sleep-in service. Yeah, I, lo I love our late crowd. Guys, thanks for coming to the late service. Just giving us some room at some of the other services. You know, it's, it's been an incredible weekend here. We've seen God do some amazing things. It's an exciting time for our church because instead of just having Easter services at Christ the King, this year at, at Bellingham, this year we're actually doing 10 services in four different locations. And uh, we've heard amazing things. Amazing things from Ferndale and amazing things from Southside already. And so we're just super excited. And we haven't even got to Sudden Valley. That's tonight. And so we're excited about that part of it. So if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Uh, I respond to Grant or Hey You. Uh, someone called me Reverend earlier today. <laughs> I'm like, you're new here, aren't you? Right? It's like, that just doesn't cut it. So... Um, just whistle and go, hey, Grant, if you need anything. And uh, I would appreciate just having an opportunity to get to know you. Uh, been here for a while and just so excited. I love Easter when we get to come together as a family and celebrate our risen Savior. If you're visiting with us, I just need you to do me a favor, okay? Just take a big, deep breath and relax. Nobody's going to do anything weird. Uh, and we're just really excited that you've come and have decided to spend Easter with us here at Christ the King. So God brought my wife Laurel and I together on June the 10th, 1989. So in about a year, a little plus, we'll be going for 25 years together. I know that God was involved in that wedding because it was a miracle that a girl like her would marry a guy like me. I mean, the fact that we're married, that's proof of divine intervention right there, okay? I mean, but apparently my design on that wedding actually started many, many years before. A couple of years ago, we were getting ready for a garage sale, and I was getting ready to sell my Hardy Boy mystery book collection. Anybody else read Hardy Boys? Uh, the girls read Nancy Drew, right? That's how it worked. Yeah. But I'm going through some of these old books. You know, I'm sticking a dollar sticker on each one of them just to try and get them out of my garage because... Having a clean garage is a godly thing for me because I have OCD, all right? So I'm going, I'm flipping through, and I find a page way in the back of one of the books that proved to me, apparently I've been thinking about getting married for a really, really long time because, because of the handwriting style, the age of the paper, and the content of the note that I found, I, apparently I've been working on this since I was in about third grade. Because what I found was what I was looking for in a wife in the third grade. <laughs> this is my list of third grade spousal requirements, okay? She must be pretty. She must love hockey. I'll explain that in a minute, okay? She must like me. She must be fun. She must love God. She must like dogs. Okay? Now, I get the fact that God and hockey are on the same level and that she would want to love them because I grew up in Canada and that's how we roll north of the border. Okay? That's just kind of how it works. All right? The thing that kills me is the fact that while she needs to love God and hockey, she only needs to like me. And the fact that I'm on the same level as dogs, like that's... Now, what's kind of funny about it is this note is actually completely prophetic because I have three dogs and they run my house and I know exactly where I fit on the pecking order, okay? That's kind of how it goes. But I had a written list and at some point in my life, I actually believed that that list was going to get somewhere. So you fast forward, you know, 13, 14 or 15 years and I enter into the world of dating and I discover something. I find out that I was not the only one with a list, I found out Laurel had a list too. And my list was pretty easy. Laurel's list was tough. 
And I began to recognize very, very quickly that I was going to come short because I didn't meet any of her requirements. And I remember asking for God's help to try and meet those requirements. I grew up in a church home. Where I grew up, church was a big deal. You know, I did a wanna, I memorized my verses, and I quickly figured out that, that the Bible seemed to have a list too, a list of rules. And, and as I grew up, I, I was intimidated by that list of rules. I mean, in fact, I was scared to death of dying because when you combined my addiction to perfection and good old-fashioned Baptist religious guilt, I mean, I went to bed every single night completely afraid that I was doomed to hell because I'd broken every single list in the book and I hadn't even made it out of sixth grade yet. I mean, I thought I was in trouble. It's no fun feeling like you're never good enough or that you fall short over and over and over again. But that's exactly how I felt. I just kept coming up short over and over and over again and I convinced myself there's just absolutely no way that a God, a loving God, could love a failure like me. I felt dirty, condemned, alone, and I remember praying and asking God for help. I went to church one day, and someone pointed out that there were actually 613 individual laws listed in the Old Testament, one for every piece of paper. 613 laws listed, rules listed, and that was in the part of the Bible before Jesus even showed up, right? I mean, I'm freaking out because I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, I can't even handle the Ten Commandments, and then some pastor shows up and says there's 603 more. That is not encouraging when you're not feeling good about yourself. I mean, that pushed me over the edge. I mean, how could anybody keep 613 individual laws? I had another question. Why would anybody want to try and keep 613 individuals laws. I mean, why would anybody want that many rules? And once again, I felt lost. I felt hopeless. I felt dead. And it didn't help because this entire time, I was a good Christian kid. I was a good church boy. So I would do my little devotions in the evening with a little tiny book called Take Five. And I would read for five minutes. That was my time. And I remember reading James chapter 2, verse 10, which freaked me out because James 2.10 says this, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point of it is guilty of it all. I thought, that is not good. <laughs> that is just not good. I remember thinking, that takes care of that. That takes care of that. I'm done for, so I might as well just go and do my own thing. And so that's what I did. I decided I was going to live my life my way. So I chased relationships. I chased acceptance. I chased status. I chased stuff. I chased perfection. I chased alternatives. I chased substitutes. I chased counterfeits. I chased anything that looked like it would fill the hole in my soul, just hoping to find some level of peace. And I couldn't figure out why. Why? When I was trying to be so unbelievably alive, why did I keep feeling so unbelievably dead inside? I was doing everything I could to capture life and live life, and yet I felt dead emotionally, dead relationally, dead spiritually. One more time, I needed help. I needed God's help. Because while I was out trying to live life, I was also adding to another list. I was adding to a pile of my own sin and pain, and my list combined made the 613 laws that I found in the Old Testament look like a small stack of post-it notes. 
because my stuff, I mean, I just, I just listed them once and I got this much. I mean, if I could go back and talk to you about the sin cycle that I got caught in, I would use two words to describe it, endless and repetitive. Anybody else been there? The same stuff over and over and over again. Maybe you kind of feel like your list looks like that too. Let me tell you just some of the things. I mean, I started lying early. I discovered really, really quickly that if you could tell stories, people liked you. So I would tell you whatever you wanted to hear. Didn't matter if it needed to be real or not. I just kind of just got with the program and I learned really, really quick that I could influence people and if you didn't like me, give me five sentences and I'll make sure you do. It just became almost pathological in, in never being able to separate fact from fiction. That just led into slander. I'll tell you what, given the opportunity, I would throw you under the bus so fast it would make your head spin. Because if that helped me feel better about myself and made you look bad in the eyes of my boss or my teacher or whatever else, it was game on in that moment. Which naturally led to gossip, right? You know, we call it prayer requests in church, but <laughs> it. It's true, isn't it? But it tends to be gossip, right? We just want to share, you know, I just want to share this with one of my brothers or my sisters. I mean, at this time, I'm a high school guy, so lust is obviously a part of it. And if you pretended that you don't have an issue with that, whether you're a girl or a guy, you just lied in church. Welcome to my pile, okay? All right, that's good. So, I mean, and then murder... I mean, I know I've never actually killed anybody, but the Bible says if you think it in your head and believe it in your heart, that's actually, you're guilty of that particular sin. Do you know what that means? That means I murder people on the way to work on the guide every week. <laughs> There's a pile of dead bodies between here and Linden going both directions because just like you drop dead and you drop dead and you drop dead. Theft. I used to rip off my boss. I used to work at a university seemed like he had an endless supply of office supplies, and I just happened to need office supplies. So I just helped myself take whatever I needed to. I was doing all this while I was going to church. And I became what so many people in our society hate, a class A1 hypocrite. I mean, the list just went on. Apathy, so many times when I knew the right thing to do, and I just decided not to do it. The sins of omission, judgment, I'll tell you what, if you were above me, I would judge you because you must have done something illegal to get to that level. If you were below me, I would judge you because you were exactly where you belong. And the list just goes on, pride, hatred, idolatry. By the time I got done, boy, I had a really, really, really big list of failures, and, and the list of my sin just went on and on and on, and I continued to repeat my sinful cycle over and over and over and over and over again, and then because I'm still a good little church boy and doing my quiet time at night, I run into a verse in the book of Romans, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, there's a whole lot more to that verse, but I didn't even get to it. I didn't even get to the conclusion. I just came to a simple conclusion with the first part. I guess that means I'm dead. If the wages of this, if the price of this is death, then that means I'm dead. Dead to life, dead to future, dead to a dream, dead to hope. I mean, I, when I read the story of the crucifixion, the people I related to most in the story were the followers of Jesus. Looking up at their dead leader, hanging on a cross, and thinking, well, that takes care of that. Our future is dead, our hope is dead, our dream is dead. I know so many of us feel dead because my office is full of people who just come in to talk. Young people, old people, 
people that have made it, people that haven't made it, and they sit in my office, and we just talk like normal, everyday people, and every single one of them at some level just says, you know, I'm trying so desperately hard to live this thing called life that just keep coming up short, and I feel dead inside. We try hard to live a life that has some meaning, and then we run into this endless supply of dead ends, and We have more questions than answers in the pile of our failures and sin. It just keeps piling up and opposing our best efforts to get it right. And we just get, it's depressing. It's discouraging. Some of you are like, man, I hope this message goes in a different direction. Because right now, I am not encouraged. I see some of you, you're elbowing the person who brought you here. And they're like, dude, your pastor has issues. (laughs) You have no idea. We're just getting started. Right? All of us at some level feeling that spiritual deadness. But here's the beauty of the Easter story. The Easter story does not end with death. It just gets started. That's the best part of the whole story. I'm so glad the story of Jesus doesn't end in death with him on a cross. I mean, I'm so glad when death thought it had won at the end of the crucifixion, God pulled off the greatest comeback ever. And I'm so glad that I was included when hope came alive and Jesus rose and death freaked out and the devil was defeated and what happened on Friday was revolutionized on Sunday when this group of people came to a a, a cemetery looking to, to wrap spices around a dead body and instead ran into a couple of angel type guys yes we believe that's true around here and the angel said to them and asked them a question why are you looking for the living among the dead and then they said the statement that all of human history pivots on he is not here he is risen that's the beauty of the Easter story I'm so glad Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15 are in the Bible We've been doing a series from the, from the book of Colossians in Scripture. As a whole church, we've been reading this book out loud to each other for the last four or five weeks. And we strategically planned that we were going to land on Colossians 2, 13 to 15 on Easter weekend. Because I think these are some of the most powerful Easter, uh, Easter verses that you'll ever read. Let me tell you about the guy who wrote these. He was a murderer, literally. He was a thug. His name was Saul. And he was out persecuting the church, trying to wipe out the followers of Jesus. Apparently, by the number of people in this room, he did not do a very good job. Because we keep showing up, you know? We're like a bad virus, you know? Just keep coming back over and over and over again. Saul got transformed into a guy named Paul because he actually had a confrontation with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he ended up doing a complete 180. Paul, this former hitman, turns into a pastor and he writes these words in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sin, when this was crushing you, and that's exactly how I felt with my list of failures, when you were dead in your sin and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Okay, don't get caught up in the language, all right? Don't leave and say, the pastor talked about circumcision. Okay, don't go there, all right? circumcision used to be a sign of religious devotion. That's what it was. And Paul's just saying this. Not only were you dead in your sin, you also weren't devoted. Listen, when you were dead in your sin and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That's the good news of Easter. Because Jesus is alive and exchange is made possible. We can exchange spiritual death for life. 
We can exchange hopelessness for hope. We can exchange despair for joy. We can exchange temporary for eternal. We can exchange a counterfeit life that chases things that don't even fill our hearts. We can exchange that for a real life that actually God said came, that he came to give it to us to the full. We can experience all of Romans 6.23. See, I got stuck in the middle of the verse. Let me give you the whole thing. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good part of Romans 6. The Bible goes on. Paul says, he forgave us all of our sin, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. All of this condemned me. I had no hope. Nothing. But when I came to Jesus... This pile of sin was forgiven. When I came to Christ, I showed up dead. I was a mess. I was not together. I was trying to do that good person thing, trying to do more good things than bad things, trying to balance the scales. And I showed up, and I was a complete and total mess with my pile of sin. And Jesus said, if you'll give that to me, I'll breathe life back into your soul. See, this is the deal. Every one of us has a pile of sin, and it's caused a spiritual debt. I had a debt of sin I couldn't pay, and the beauty of Easter is Jesus paid it for me, and he paid it completely. My debt's been paid in full. I'm no longer condemned. My record's been wiped clean. I still fail every single day. I still meet spiritual opposition every single day, but Jesus is greater than any temptation or desire or or, or counterfeit that the world can throw at me. All of this got removed, and the Bible said Jesus took it as far away as the east is from the west. That's a really large distance. You know, one of the parts of Christ the King that I love is that this is church for sinners. I like that. There are no perfect people allowed. If you think you're perfect, you probably aren't going to hang out with us very often because we're just going to convince you we're, we're really messy around here. When people ask me to talk about this place, I always say this. We have former everythings around this place. We've got former convicts, former religious addicts, former sluggards, former chemical addicts, former uptight church legalists, former porn addicts. We've got former everythings here. The reality of this church is this. We all have sin in common, but that doesn't define us. That's not what holds us together. No, because Jesus took the sin of the whole world on his perfect life. Our records have been wiped clean. So if you come and hang out with us, and I hope you will, you're going to find something out real quick. We don't ever brag about what God did for, about what we've done for God, but we brag all the time about what God did for us. Because we were a mess, and he showed up, and he took care of all this for every single one of us. And that's what binds us together. That's why the Bible continues saying this about our debt. Paul goes on, he goes, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus took this for me, and he nailed it to the cross. This doesn't define me anymore. This doesn't dictate my character. Jesus became my substitute. He removed the penalty. And for you, Jesus offers to take away all of your sin and nail it to the cross just like he did it for me so that you can stand forgiven and set free before the God who loves you and created you. 
chapter 2 wraps up with these words. It says, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, okay? Paul's talking about that spirit of condemnation that shows up and causes us to look at this huge pile of garbage that we've created and, and we'll ask this question. How could God possibly forgive all that? You've made a mess out of your life. God can't forgive you. That's just too easy. I remember thinking that everybody else got to sing Amazing Grace, but I never did. Amazing Grace was for everybody else in the room, not for me. Because the enemy of my soul would show up and say, you're in a completely different category, you hypocritical little church boy. I know what you've done. I know when you did it. I've kept track of it. I've got my own list. There is no way that God could ever absorb all the garbage that you did. You, my friend, are in a category all on your own. Maybe you've been there too. Paul's talking about that evil power that comes in and accuses us and condemns us and convinces us that it's just, it can't be that easy. In a few moments, I'm going to lay out what it means to accept this gift of Christ. And I promise you, I promise you, the enemy of your soul is going to come along and say, it can't be that easy. It can't be just accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. No, you have to do more than that. It could never be as simple as the equation Jesus plus nothing. That doesn't work in any other area of life. Why would it work when it comes to your soul? He'll say there has to be a catch. And yet Jesus stands and says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it says. If you want your life to have meaning, if you want to experience forgiveness, if you want to truly be alive, it all starts with a relationship with the God that, who came to give his life for each and every one of us. And then Paul wraps up with this beautiful little phrase, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Just so we're clear on that phrase, he is Jesus and them are the powers and the authorities that condemn us. Which means this. Here's a simple explanation. Two words of how Easter works. Jesus wins. He wins. So I've been hanging around here as the lead pastor for about 10 years. I remember my first Good Friday service. I'd never done a Good Friday service before. And I was kind of freaking out. So I went next door to the Barnes & Noble into the Starbucks down in the, ba in, in the bottom floor there to get some caffeinated courage, you know? Because I'm coming over here to speak at Good Friday. I'm like, I don't know what we're doing on Good Friday. I've told this story here before because at just that moment, God knew that I just needed to hear the message one more time that Jesus won. So I'm standing on the street corner. It's pouring rain. I'm waiting for the light so that I can cross the street. And some crazy human being from Whatcom County on a pedal bike comes down this back hill behind the... He's going like Mach 3, flat out in the rain, and I see him out of my left eye, he sees me out of his right eye, and he yells at the top of his lungs, Pastor Grant, don't forget, in the end, he wins! Woof! <laughs> Jesus took my sin and nailed it to the cross, and then he proclaimed this, about my list. 
it's finished. It's finished. This no longer defines Grant Ernest Fishbook. Do not laugh at my middle and last name. I am Ernie's son, all right? So that's the way it goes. This does not define me anymore. That does. Kim, this doesn't define you anymore. That does. Steve, this does not represent you anymore. That does. Caleb, this does not define you anymore, brother. That does. That is our identity. Janice, same for you. It's not this stack anymore. It's that one. That's the beauty of Easter. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant Satan's no longer in charge. Sin no longer rules the day. The relationship between man and God has been restored. And the hope of eternity has been reestablished by the one who came. And his name is Jesus Christ. So let me just summarize it all for you. Let me just try to wrap it in a nutshell for you. And as I do, I'm going to invite the worship team and our little mini choir to come and hang out with me one more time. And if you could just keep the attention here while they're getting set up. Because Jesus died and rose again, I can make some statements that I never used to be able to make. But I can make them now because I've been redefined. Not perfect. Oh, believe me. Just redefined. Because Jesus died and rose again, I can make the statement, I am not condemned. I have an opportunity for eternal life because of what Jesus did. And if I ever doubt that Jesus loves me, I just look to the cross because that's where the condemnation of my soul was canceled. Replaced with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which sounds bad, but it's not. It's fantastic. It's God lovingly chasing me whenever I decide to go back to the pile of garbage and pursue old stuff. Because Jesus died and rose again, I'm not condemned. Secondly, because Jesus died and rose again, I can be forgiven. Hard to believe, but it's true. I can have my past forgiven, my slate's been wiped clean, my purity's been restored, and my future has been secured. Thirdly, because Jesus died and rose again, I can have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, I can spend the rest of my life knowing that Jesus is intimately involved in the details of my life and that I never walk alone. For those of you who know Christ, you know this to be true. Even though sometimes God may be silent, He is never absent. Ever. Here's what's next. Because Jesus died and rose again, I can be transformed. Like I said, I'm no longer defined by my failure. Now Jesus even takes the broken parts of my life and he can give me something beautiful for something broken. Someone asked me the other day, who do you love talking to the most? You know who I love talking to? I love talking to pre-processed, jaded, bitter Christian church kids. Because I get you. You get me. Going through the motions on a treadmill, running 150 miles an hour and going absolutely nowhere. I get it. It's amazing to me that God can take the broken part of my history and actually use that to encourage somebody who's walking the same road. Finally, because Jesus died and rose again, I've got hope. And I never used to have hope. My dad used to sing in church. I loved it when Ernie sang because it just made me happy. I remember an old song that he and his quartet used to sing on Easter. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. 
Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, whoa, whoa, he holds the future. Some of you remember that, right? And life is worth the living just because he lives. Knowing Jesus is what gives us hope to live a life that follows the one who came for us and died for us and rose again so that we could have relationship with him. All through this series, they've been beaming a cross onto the floor right in the middle of the room for me. Because that's true north. And as long as I always keep the cross in view, I'm able to celebrate with the fact that I was lost and broken and Jesus found me. You know, if you read your Bible, it's an amazing thing. The Bible starts with a wedding. Adam and Eve, man and a woman, God brings them together and he begins to tell a story that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. And the essence of the story is this, God wants to have a relationship with you. If you read all the way through it and you get to the end of it, guess what you end up with at the end? Another wedding. A wedding where Jesus, the bridegroom, is united with the bride and the bride is made up of all of those of us who are no longer defined by all of this garbage but instead live underneath of that banner of the cross that washes us as white as snow. A couple weeks ago, buzz started going around the office about, about a song that was just kind of touching people. And last Sunday afternoon, last minute, we ran out into the woods and we put together just a little story so that you can understand this one simple truth. God loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. So let's listen and watch and see if maybe God's having a conversation with each one of us today. In the beginning, God created a man and a woman, and he brought them together in a relationship. It was the perfect wedding. But then sin broke the relationship between man and God, and that broke the heart of God. God so deeply wanted to restore that relationship, so he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for all sin, once and for all. This is the story of the Son of God hanging on a cross for me. And it ends with a bride and groom and a wedding by a glassy sea. Oh, death, where is your sting? Cause I'll be there singing holy, holy. The book of Revelation tells how at the end of the age, Jesus will return for his children. Revelation 19.6 says, And I heard what seemed to be an immense crowd speaking with one voice. It was like the sound of a roaring waterfall. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the all-powerful, reigns. Now is the time for joy and happiness. He deserves all the glory. 
for the wedding feast has begun. The marriage of the Lamb to his bride has commenced. The groom has proposed. All those who have confessed their sin and named Jesus as Lord are invited to that wedding, not as guests, but as the bride. Relationship will be restored and the bride will be presented pure and spotless, beaming with the righteousness of Christ. The guest list is open. The invitation has been made. It will be a perfect wedding. This is a story of the bride and wife waiting on a wedding day. Anticipation welling up inside as the groom is crowned a king. Oh, death, where is your sting? Cause I'll be there singing holy, holy, holy is the of John, there's another wedding. Jesus is a guest there with his mother and his disciples, and he ends up doing a miracle. He turns water into wine. At one point in the story, Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was thinking ahead to the hour of his excruciating death, where he would be beaten, spit upon, mocked, crucified, and ultimately have the wrath of God poured out on him for the sin of all humanity, past, present, and future. Jesus went to the cross he cried out for forgiveness for those that tortured him, and yet he received no mercy. Jesus went to the cross. He cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? And he got no answer. Jesus went to the cross and he died alone, but it didn't end there. Three days later, he rose, defeating death, and his scripture says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is alive, we are alive. And one day we'll be with him in glory. One day he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more pain, no more sickness, and no more suffering. We will join with the multitudes of those who've trusted in this loving God at his wedding feast. And we will taste and see that the Lord is good. We will join with all those who've been forgiven and have been raised from death to life and say with a loud voice, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is the story of the Son of God hanging on a cross for me. And it ends with a bride and groom and a wedding by Pastor This is the story of
When I showed up in front of Jesus, I showed up a mess. Me and my stack of sin and failure. And Jesus shocked me when he said, give it to me. I'll take it from you. We'll switch my cross for your pile. He also included this too. Because all of a sudden that was irrelevant. And it was all about relationship, not rules. So I handed it over. And God did a miracle that I've been trying to live out ever since. And on this Easter weekend, I just think it would feel like spiritual malpractice if I didn't give you an opportunity to know what it feels like to give this away and not have to carry it anymore. So I'm going to invite you to do something. In a moment, we're going to pray. And if you'd like to take this and have it nailed to the cross so that it doesn't define you anymore, I'm going to invite you to not listen to that voice in your head that says it just can't be that simple. I'm going to invite you to pray in faith and to believe that Jesus wins. So would you bow your head and close your eyes? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I've got no idea how or why you came to church this Easter, but I know this. God brought you here so you could hear a simple message. God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would never perish and have eternal life. God loves you so much he gave the most precious gift that he could and receiving that gift starts with the simple act of giving your heart to God and receiving the gift that he offers. So right now on this day, the end of March 2013, if you'd like Jesus to take your pile of garbage and nail it to the cross and give you a new identity and a fresh start, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me right now in the depth of your soul. Jesus, I tried to live independent of you. I tried to live life on my own terms today I know I've sinned against you by doing this on my own. While I know I don't deserve it, Jesus, would you forgive me? I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that you are Lord and that God raised you from the dead for me. And I believe you can and will forgive my sin. So I choose to follow you for the rest of my life. I give back the ownership of my life and I ask that you somehow would wipe my slate clean. I receive you now as Lord and Savior of my life and I thank you so much for letting me come home. With every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody moving around the room, if you prayed that prayer, my Bible says that a transformation is going on in your soul right this second. God's breathing new life into you. You are a new creation. Old things are gone. Everything is becoming new. And I would so love to celebrate your new life 
by praying for you. So if you're here today on this Easter morning and you prayed that prayer and you asked God to take away that pile of sin that you've accumulated, He did, and I'd love to know about it. Would you just slip your hand up in the air so that I could see it? Just put it straight up. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you over here. God bless you and you. And God bless you and you. And God bless you in that back section. God bless you and you. God bless you over here on this side. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you down here in the front. God bless you right there. God bless you. God bless you too, young man. God bless you. God bless you. I see your hand, sweetie. Why God loves kids. God bless you. Father God, thank you so much for everyone who just slipped up their hand and in doing so just made a statement before God Almighty. I believe. I believe. God, thank you for touching everyone who prayed that prayer. You are alive and well and living in us, and we give you praise. We agreed together, and all God's people agreed and said, Amen.